lights. Reminds me of all the Christmas lights that I had to put up around my house. We went for years without Christmas lights. The kids thought that it was a religious conviction or something that we wouldn't have them. They didn't know that it was really a matter of laziness. In fact, it was my sons-in-law that forced my hand. They bought them and brought them home and said, hey, I'll help you hang them. And I've been doing it ever since. It really is fun to decorate for Christmas, though, isn't it? To bring out all the lights and the decorations. It really is just a really great time of year. As part of that process, we have a number of decorations that go in our home, probably like you do that have some sentimental value. They've been used over and over again through the years. The kids have grown to love them. And this year, one of those decorations, Carol got it out, and we had carefully wrapped it, or she probably more appropriately, had carefully wrapped it in, in, and this is one time that I was really glad that it was her carefully wrapping it in bubble pack because when it came out, the ear was broken off of one of the animals. (sighs) Alas. Super glue puts ears back on animals, or at least ceramic animals. <laughs> and you know, I was thinking about that, and I thought that's kind of illustrative of the situation in the church. Ceramic Christmas ornaments are fragile, they break easily. And the unity of the church is also fragile. And unfortunately, it breaks easily too. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, page 1136. Page 1136 if you're using a pew Bible. Romans chapter 12. Because this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with this topic of unity in the church. Actually, he's dealing with unity and diversity together in the church. And in one sense, they're two sides of the same coin. They're both essential in the church, unity and diversity. This section of Scripture, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 8 this morning. But this section of Scripture really grows out of the message from last week. Follow along as I read Romans chapter 12 beginning in verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable, perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. 
if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This morning we're looking at verses 3 through 8. And the Apostle Paul has for us in this section two commands. Two commands that apply to every single Christian. Two commands that apply to every single Christian so that we might experience harmony in the church. This is a big issue. It was important to the Apostle Paul in the first century, this issue of harmony or unity in the church, and it's just as important today. So the Apostle Paul is going to speak to us about these issues, and he begins with the first command in verses 3 through 5, where he says we must think soberly. We must think soberly. He says, for through the grace given to you, or given to me rather, I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Paul is going to begin here drawing out the implications really of last week's sermon. How many of you were here last week, by the way? Great. How many remember the sermon from last week besides me? That's good. That's good. There were actually... There were actually four pegs that you could hang your hat on last week. Do you remember what they were? We had to remember something. Do you, do you remember that? We had to remember the mercies of God, didn't we? After we remember the mercies of God, what were we to do next? We were to relinquish something. That is ourselves. We were to relinquish ourselves to God. Isn't that true? Remember the mercies of God. Relinquish ourselves to God. What was next? We resist. We were to resist worldly corruption. That is, we were to resist being conformed to this world. Wasn't that right? And there was one more. What was it? We were to renew. We were to renew our minds through the Scriptures. Right? Now look at verse 3. With that as a background, look back here at verse 3. Because Paul is going to begin to draw out the implications of that message. We called it last week a doorway. We said it was the doorway by which we entered into the balance of the book of Romans. And that's indeed true. We're we're entering through that doorway now this morning here. and, And we're going to begin to see what it means to live a life based on remembering, relinquishing, resisting, and renewing. So Paul says here that the that the first aspect of the renewed mind is that we are to think soberly about ourselves. We are to think soberly about ourselves. You see it? I say to every man among you, verse 3, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I call this a command, by the way. And it's a command because it comes from the Apostle Paul. It comes from the Apostle Paul and it's addressed to every single person at the church in Rome. Again, look at verse 3. He says, I say to every man among you. This is not just a command to a few in the congregation. This is a command to every single person in the congregation. To every man among you, Paul says. I have a command for you. And this command, Paul says, is based upon the grace given to me. First part of the verse. Do you see it? Through the grace given to me. 
When Paul talks about the grace given to him, what he's talking about is the grace of his apostleship. The fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. We, we see that if you turn to the right just a little bit to chapter 15 and verse 15. Where Paul, writing there a little bit later in the letter, he says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Chapter 1, verse 5. We won't turn there, but it, it speaks of the same, the same thing. The grace of apostleship. So here in verse 3, when the Apostle Paul says, through the grace given to me, what he's really saying to them is, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, I say to every single person in the church at Rome. Wow. Spokesman of Jesus Christ to every single person. Well, beloved, we have his words here for us, don't we? Don't we have the written revelation of this apostle? Therefore, we can say that by the grace given to Paul, that is, by the apostleship of Paul recorded here in the book of Romans, he is saying to every single person here, right now, something. He is speaking to you this morning directly. And what he is saying to every single one of you, what he is saying to me is that I am not to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. I am not to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. This is a binding command of Paul upon you and upon me. Wow. Does this cut directly to where we are at, isn't it? Big egos and pride. Big egos and pride. Boasting. This is not something new. This is, this is part of the condition of mankind. We are all, we're all driven by our own pride. We all have an ego. We all think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And Paul's saying, we must not think this way. You know, our culture has taken pride to an art form, egos to an art form. Look around in the world of sports. Look around in the world of entertainment. Big egos, boasting. It's, it's the norm. Beyond that, we, we live from the earliest ages of what I call the cult of self-esteem. Everybody's telling you, you're, you're good. You're, you're really good. In fact, it's gotten to the point now when we have a sporting event, everybody gets a victor's trophy, right? Because everybody is so good, they deserve it. This is the world in which we live that is constantly stroking this pride within us. And the Apostle Paul is saying to us here, don't think that way. Do not think that way. It is absolutely antithetical to what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, what I'm talking to you about now is in the exact opposite of this manifestation of unregenerate thinking that traps every single one of us. How do we, how do we overcome this? It's by developing a sensible view of who we really are. Beloved, none of us are immune to this self-deception of ego. None of us are immune to the self-deception of pride. 
How do I battle this? How do I battle pride? How do I make humility a real part of my life? The answer here, Paul says in verse 3, is, is by not comparing myself with other people. Not comparing myself with other people, but instead to soberly, soberly reflect on the fact that all Christians, all of us, me and you, every single one of us, no matter how important we are, no matter how unimportant we are, we are all saved in the same way by grace through faith. Look at the verse, verse 3. I say to every man among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think Instead, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. This this statement here, a measure of faith, is what grammarians call a genitive of apposition. A genitive of apposition. And all that means is, is that faith is the measure by which we are to judge ourselves. God has allotted to each a measure that is faith. God has allotted to each a measure. The word is metron. It could also be translated standard. God has allotted to each of us a standard, namely faith. Namely faith. Think not more highly than you ought to think. Think so has to have sound judgment. How? Reflect upon the fact that the standard that God has given unto us is faith itself. This is the standard. When we evaluate ourselves on the basis of the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith, then we will have an accurate measure of who we really are. In other words, we could say it like this. God has allotted to you faith. Is that right? And you are completely dependent upon that faith for your salvation. Is that not right? Therefore, when you soberly reflect on that reality, that faith has been given to you by God, it has been allocated to you or allotted to you, and you are saved by that faith alone, that is, that it is all coming from God to you as His gift. Therefore, when you think about that, you will begin to think soberly, and you will begin to act with humility. One person said it this way. When it comes to salvation, every Christian puts his pants on the same way. One leg at a time. One leg at a time. We all come to God in salvation by grace through faith. We are all equally dependent upon that reality. And when we soberly consider that, it produces unity. It produces unity in the church. Outside the church... That person in the pew next to you may be your boss. Inside the church, they are your brother. They are your sister in Jesus Christ. Think soberly. Think soberly. Recognize the reality that when it comes to salvation, there is no hierarchy. There are no pecking orders. There are no pecking orders. Paul goes on. He goes on to say here that sober thinking also requires us to properly appraise our role and relationship 
within the local church. You see verse 4, it, it begins with the word for, the conjunction for. That is that he's, it's connected up to the statement here in verse 3. It's, it flows from the statement here in verse 3. And Paul, Paul is now going to give an illustration for us. He's, he's going to illustrate this and he's going to do it from the human body. And he's going to use that illustration to clarify his point regarding the body of Jesus Christ. This is a familiar illustration of the Apostle Paul. We ourselves see it over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, don't we? He uses that same kind of body analogy over there. The human body is fearfully and wonderfully made, isn't it? It is an amazing thing. I mean, when you think about the human body on a macro level, just a simple task of picking up a glass of water and drinking it, all the hand-eye coordination that goes on, all the motor skills that are necessary to just to see it and think about it and transmit it to your hand and, and grasp around it and, and pick it up and bring it to the right place in your mouth and tip it up and drink it and so forth. There's a lot involved in a simple task of drinking a glass of water. And there are multiple parts of the human body that are involved. And every single one of them is important to that task of taking a sip of water. Leave out one of them and you'll pour it down your, your front or you'll drop it or you won't even get your hand around it at all. And when you move down to the micro level, it's amazing too. Within the human cell, all the things that are going on with inside a human cell, it would put the most fully automated car manufacturing facility to shame when you look inside the human cell and to see all that's going on. The human body is an amazing unity and diversity working together in order to accomplish the task. And so Paul draws on that analogy of the human body here, and he's going to speak of it in reference to the body of Jesus Christ. And the point of it here is that this illustration of the human body flows over to Christians and it says, just like in the human body, all the varying parts are necessary to accomplish a task. So also in the body of Jesus Christ, every single one of you and me are essential for the operation of this local body here. Look again, verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We're individuals. We perform individual tasks and functions. But there is a a mutualness about it. That requires us to serve one another. That we are dependent upon each other. And that without you, the body will suffer. Without me, the body will suffer. You need the person next to you, and they need you. It's all pulled together here. We belong to a single whole. And by the way, just take a look here at verse 5. And so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I think in the context of this passage, it's it's impossible to evade the reality that the body of Christ he's speaking of here is not some sort of individual or excuse me, universal, undistinguished body of all Christian believers throughout the world and throughout the ages. I think he's talking about a local church. He's talking about a local church. 
And he's saying here in this local church at Rome, every single man among you I am speaking to, and I'm saying that you're all necessary for the body of Christ, that local church. Beloved, we, if we're to maintain harmony in the church here at Foothill, if we're to maintain harmony here, we need to think soberly about ourselves. We just need to exert sober thinking about who we really are. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And, and when we do that, it levels the playing field. It levels the playing field. There aren't people that are more important here than others. It's not a sense where if so-and-so leaves, what do we care? We don't need them anyway. We need everyone. We're united here in Jesus Christ. This first truth, this first command that we must think soberly is followed in verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8 with another command. Not only must we think soberly about our unity in Jesus Christ because we all come the same way through faith is that we must minister wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly. That is that we must be involved in the processes of the body. Verses 6 through 8, Paul picks up this whole topic of unity and diversity and he, he moves it forward by speaking about spiritual gifts. He speaks here about spiritual gifts. Now let me make just a couple of background comments before we look at his statements about the different gifts. These gifts that are spoken of here in verses 6 through 8, and there are seven of them that are referred to here, there is a measure of overlap between the other passages, which are what we call gift lists, the other places where spiritual gifts are listed in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4 speak of spiritual gifts as well. And it seems obvious, I think, when you look at those other passages and you look about what's going on here, that what the Apostle Paul is giving us in verses 6 through 8 is a representative list of spiritual gifts. This is not an exhaustive list. He is not saying that this Rome, church at Rome, this is all you get, these seven. I don't think so. I think what he's doing is he is, he is giving a representative list of spiritual gifts and the different functions of those gifts. And he is doing that to enforce his point that in the diversity, the multiplicity of spiritual gifts, we need to be all involved in unity, ministering one to another. Now, in this list here, he, he mentions the prophet, the prophet. And I'll, I'll just say this about prophets. Prophets were men or women appointed by God in the early church for the purpose of bringing revelation from God to generally a local assembly for its benefit, for its edification. Those containing those that had the gift of prophecy, usually what went with them were other miraculous and confirmatory gifts. And those Gifts, the prophecy and the miraculous confirmatory gifts and the gift and the gifted man called an apostle all passed from the scene early in the first century, middle of the first century. And when they passed, they left behind their writings for us, which are the means by which the church now receives its edification and and uh, maturing gifts. 
So I think probably the best way to look at this representative list that's given here in verses 6 through 8 of chapter 12 is to think about these spiritual gifts like colors on a painter's palette, if you can think of it that way. A painter, when he's going to paint a beautiful landscape, he has a palette with all different colors on it, and he takes a a dab of this one and a dab of that one, and they mix them together, and he paints this beautiful picture. And that beautiful picture draws upon certain amounts of the various colors. And so these spiritual gifts that Paul lists for us here representatively, I think are a, could be likened to that painter's palette and that the divine artist is God himself. And he draws from these gifts, not all of them even, but certain ones, and he puts them together and he makes you you. He makes you who you are. One author said that as a Christian, you are like a spiritual snowflake. You are a unique individual that God has put together and given certain gifts. And these gifts are given for the mutual edification of the body of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse seven. Beyond that, another observation that we want to make here before we delve in is that verses 6 through 8 do not contain a verb. There is no verb in verses 6 through 8. No verb at all. And so one of two things is happening here grammatically. Either Paul Paul is merely listing certain gifts and the fact that God has distributed these gifts, or we must like all major translations do, supply a verb. We must supply a verb to the passage. In light of the fact that he speaks of the gift and then he includes an exhortation to use the gift, for example, verse 7, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, verse uh, excuse me, verse 6, verse 7, if service in his serving, each and every one of them includes an exhortation to use it. In light of that reality, I think it is proper to supply an imperative verb to this section, and that's exactly what all of the translations that you're reading do. They all supply a verb. New American Standard says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, it supplies, let, uh, let each exercise them accordingly, as a supplying here of the verb. So with that as background, let's take a look at what Paul has to say about ministering wholeheartedly. He begins here with a simple statement about the reality and diversity in the origin of spiritual gifts. Verse 6, the beginning. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We have differing grace, or, or gifts rather, given to us by the grace of God. Literally in the Greek here, these diverse gifts are called charismata, and they are the product of God's charis or grace. There's a little play on words going on here. These gifts, these charismata, are given by charis. They are given by the grace of God. Something that all believers have in common. Isn't that right? We are all recipients of the grace of God, the point that he was making back up in verse 3. So we all have these gifts. They've been given to every one of us and they've been given by the grace of God to us. 
And in keeping with the body analogy that he had already developed here back in verses 4 and 5, or, yes, 4 and 5, these gifts are given for the purpose of building up the body of Jesus Christ. They must be used rightly, not for self-aggrandizement, not to puff ourselves up, not so that others in the congregation look at us and say, boy, I wish I could be like that person. But they are given so that we might minister one to another. That in our diversity of gifts, there might be a unity of mutual edification. You know, when you receive a gift... There is a, it's inherent in the gift itself that you need to open it. That you need to open it. For example, when you go to a child's birthday party and they receive gifts, and typical of a, at least a small child, they'll open the first gift and it's something that's, that they really like and they would just as soon run off and play with that gift. Isn't that true? And so what do moms and dads always say to them? No, 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 you need to open the next one, son. No, now you need to open the next one, right? Inherent in the reality that someone has given you a gift is the fact that you are under obligation to open it. There's an obligation to unwrap it. And Paul, I think, is is speaking that way here. He says, since we have gifts that differ, since God has given us gifts that differ by the grace of God, therefore it is incumbent upon us to unwrap them and to use them. Let each use them accordingly. Maybe I need to say one more thing here. And that is that this whole topic of spiritual gifts reminds me of the time I visited the Grand Canyon. The time I visited the Grand Canyon. I was standing on the edge of the canyon and I was looking down into the canyon and I was, I was drawn to want to climb down into the canyon because it looked really beautiful down in there and very interesting. But the more I thought about climbing down into the canyon, the more I realized that I'd have to turn and climb back out again. And that was exceedingly unappealing to me. And so when I was thinking this week about these spiritual gifts, it reminded me of the Grand Canyon. It is really enticing right now to go off into a sermon series on spiritual gifts. See, I can already see one shaking head out there. Say, don't do it. So rest assured, rest assured, we are not going to leap off the edge of the rim and get lost. We're going to do it today in short order here. If you want to know about spiritual gifts, their use and abuse in, in detail, then you should have taken the fit class that was offered this fall. That we are now 12 weeks into 15, and sorry, you missed it. But actually, the syllabus is online, and you could download it, and it's a really good syllabus, and take the time to download it and read it. So I'll let Pastor Vince sort out every single issue on spiritual gifts. I'm not going to do that for you this morning, I, because we're going to lose sight of the reality of the passage if I do that. So with all of that, with all of that, let's just take a brief look at these gifts. Given by God for mutual edification, mutual benefit, given to every single person in the church, and given to be unwrapped and used. You got all that? All right. Prophecy. If prophecy, 
according to the proportion of his faith. As I said earlier, the New Testament prophet was given to the church to provide edification for the body, to exhort, to comfort the body, to bring revelation from God to them. And Paul is saying here, and and there's two possibilities. One is saying that he's speaking here of a gift of faith, the apostolic gift of faith that goes with prophecy and And that's certainly a a good likelihood of the interpretation here. The other possibility is he's saying that that we are to to exercise. They were to exercise that gift of prophecy and not go beyond the faith. That is the body of Christian truth that had been given to them. It was the limitation beyond which they were not to prophesy. They were to prophesy in accordance with the revealed will of God recorded in Scripture. So however you like it, either way. Prophecy, a gift that no longer exists in the New Testament church. But he goes on here and he he says service, the gift of service. If God has given that gift, then it's to be used in your serving. This is an interesting gift, the gift of service. There is a root word behind this gift. And from that root word, we get the word deacon, the word deacon. Actually, the root word itself denotes waiting tables, waiting on tables. The root word that stands behind deacon and it stands behind this word service. Jesus himself gives a great amount of of nobility to this gift. He really elevates this gift beyond what you and I think of when we talk about waiting tables. When When we think of someone waiting tables, we tend to look down on them. But Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and in verse 45 that even the Son of Man did not come to be served, same word, but to serve and give himself a ransom for many, give his life a ransom for many. Same word used here. So the fact that Jesus was comfortable serving, waiting tables, as it were, and in fact said that this is the reason he came, that really elevates this gift of service. Let me say to you that if God has given you a special gift of service, a special heart of service, wanting to meet people's needs, then use it for his glory here in the body and serve people who are in need. You can look in the bulletin every week and there are there are opportunities to exercise the gift of service if God has given that to you. He goes on to say, or he who teaches in his teaching. The New Testament gift of teaching involves the passing on of truth, the truth of scriptures to other people. If you're gifted in this way, then, then you are gifted in the ability to package and communicate divine truth and give it to people in a way that's accurate and memorable. The gift of teaching. If God has gifted you as a teacher, then use it in your teaching. Do not hold back. This church is always in need of Bible teachers. If God has given you that ability or if you think that maybe God has given you that ability, the elders would love to talk with you and help you to discern if that really is your gift and help you develop that gift. There's no shortage of teachers. And by the way, if we're going to plant churches and we're going to do it on a regular basis, what it means is we're going to be sending out our best teachers and we're going to need to refill the pipeline. If God has given you a gift of teaching, use it. Next. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. Those who have the gift of exhorting or exhortation 
are those who, who serve the body by calling Christians to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are uniquely gifted by God to, to see opportunities where people need to be called to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those that have this gift tend to, to be drawn towards counseling ministries. They find themselves, people are always coming to them for advice. And so they're involved in counseling. It can also be a gift that is, that is given to those involved in church music. For one way to exhort the body of Christ, the local body of Christ, to live out the gospel is through music. Church musicians tend to be exhorters. If you're an exhorter and a musician, then put your gift to work. Use the musical abilities God has given you to exhort the body of Christ to live the gospel. By the way, if you want to see a person who lives out the gift of exhortation, then go to the New Testament and do a little character study on Barnabas. On Barnabas, he's called in Acts chapter four, verse thirty-six, the son of exhortation. Same word, son of encouragement. Barnabas, take a look at his life, and you'll see what it looks like to be a man with the gift of exhortation. Next, verse eight, Paul says, "He who gives with liberality, he who gives with liberality." This gift is a little bit difficult to pin down. What it seems to be is that it seems to mark out certain people within a local body of, of Christ who have been given a specialized ability to, in, to invest materially in spiritual activities and bring about a great spiritual harvest as a result. They see spiritual opportunities and they're able to bring the material needs to bear on those so that they blossom and yield great results. Ordinarily, we think of this gift associated with somebody who has large and abundant material means, but I don't think it's necessarily that way. I don't think you have to be wealthy to have the gift of giving. I, I don't think we can just say, well, gee, I'm not wealthy, so I don't have that gift. I think one should examine himself and see, indeed, has God given you a certain ability to look out there and say, you know, if, if we were to invest here in this thing, this could really produce something. Gift of giving. One person put it, the gospel, the water of the gospel is free, but the plumbing costs money. The plumbing costs money. It takes money to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we as a body, we're dependent upon the faithful giving of of everyone. But there are certain ones that God has gifted to give in, in a kind of an extra way that help propel the gospel ministry. Beloved, if we're going to plant churches, it's going to require that. It's going to require that extra giving and those who are gifted with the gift of giving to really give. As the Apostle Paul says, look at the verse eight here with liberality, pour it out. That we might extend the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next, he talks about those gifted in leading. Verse eight, he who leads to do so with diligence. The people of God need to be led. They need to be led where the New Testament speaks of us as shepherds or excuse me, as sheep and sheep need shepherds. They need to be led to where the water is clean and the grass is good. And so there are certain people within the church that have been given this gift of giving. They're effective at leadership and to and to pursue leadership, to be effective at leadership requires hard work. 
It requires hard work. It requires sacrifice. And it's no place for a lazy person. And so I think that's why Paul is saying here, if you have this gift of leadership, you can't just sit on the sidelines. You can't just occasionally give leadership. You need to be diligent about this. You need to plunge in here and give yourself to the task of leadership of the people of God. Be diligent in leadership. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, appreciate those who give leadership among you and do so with hard work and diligence. Those who use that gift. Then he goes on. Finishing it up here, as I said, a representative list. Verse 8. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Those who have a gift of mercy, a spiritual gift of mercy, they, they engage in, in an important ministry of visiting the sick. Visiting the sick, visiting the elderly, visiting the disabled, the shut-in, those that are kind of down and out, those that are easily overlooked by the body at large. Now, we all have one another responsibilities. And, and so if you know someone here that's in the hospital, then you should go see them. You should go to see them, to visit them, to encourage them. But there are others who have been given this gift and and they are doubly effective at doing that. God has put it on their hearts to be able to do this kind of ministry of caring for the sick, caring for the elderly, caring for the disabled, providing for the poor. Again, you want a, a character sketch of somebody who appears to have this spiritual gift and use it. There was a lady by the name of Dorcas. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. She seems to have had this gift of mercy. And Paul says, if you have this gift, you see it in the end of verse 8. If you have the gift of mercy here, use it with cheerfulness. Use the gift with cheerfulness. Why would he say that? Why would he say use, use the gift of mercy with cheerfulness? Well, I, I think the answer is because when you are engaged in this kind of ministry, it, it can wear you down. It's an exhausting ministry to be caring all the time for people who most of the time can never repay you for what it is that you have given to them. And so you don't want it to become something you do grudgingly. You don't want it to be something you do by obligation. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, hey, God has given you this gift. He's given it to you for a purpose. Use it and be cheerful and be, be thankful, be happy, be glad God has given you this ability to minister among the people because you are important in the church. You're important. So he lists seven gifts here. Representative list of gifts. There are others. You can check those other passages. And as I said, I believe they're like colors on a palette. And, and so you're not all mercy and nothing else. You're not all giving and nothing else. You're not all service and nothing else. There's probably combinations that are put together and leadership, whatever it is. And, and they're all painted until you are you. You are you. You know, this whole section, verses 3 through 8 here, chapter 12, it just puts a great emphasis on the importance of recognizing the unity and diversity of the local church and the practical expression of a transformed life. What does a transformed life look like? It's a, it's a life of people who don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think, and it's people who understand how God has gifted them, and then they use those gifts for the glory of God by ministering within the body of Jesus Christ. But, beloved, I need to talk to you about problems that I see. Problems. 
in our culture and, and in our day, there is a prevailing notion that church membership and attendance is an optional thing. It's optional. I don't really need to be here. If I'm not here, nobody notices anyway, so I don't really need to be here. And I certainly don't need to join the church. In its extreme expression, this orientation towards the local body, the church, is to treat the whole process as a buffet line. That is, I come a certain place on Sunday morning and I eat the food that they put out there, but their dessert's not very good. So I go somewhere else midweek because, hey, man, they have a kicking youth program and the dessert there is delicious. And so people move from church to church. They come here for part. They go somewhere else. They go somewhere else. They might have two, three, four different churches that they're attending at one degree or another and they're drawing from. It's terrible. That is terrible. It is a complete misunderstanding of the reality of what it means to be together in the body of Christ. It's a complete misunderstanding of the reality of our unity and diversity of giftedness. It's a complete misunderstanding of the reality that you need me and I need you and you need each other. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. Well, there's another ditch on the other side of the road. That other ditch is church membership without involvement. Church membership and no ministry involvement. Okay, you know, I know you're up here. You're always talking about membership. So I joined. Knock it off my back. It's more than that. The idea that you are a member of this church and you have no ministry to the body here is absolutely contrary and foreign to what Paul is saying in this passage that a transformed life to remember, to relinquish, to resist and to renew should produce in you. You're all important. Every single person important, gifted by God for the purpose of ministering to each other. You know, when you withhold your ministry from the body, the body suffers. The body suffers. We're unable to function properly. Back to the illustration of the glass of water. Try picking up a glass of water when your thumb has been severed. It's difficult to get one's hand around the glass. Try picking up a glass of water and bringing it to your mouth to drink if you have trouble with your eyes. Or if you have a neurological disorder and your hand trembles. I mean, there's all kinds of things that make even the simplest tasks difficult to do. Well, here in the body of Jesus Christ, if we are not all functioning together and utilizing the gifts that God has given to us and he's placed us here, then this body is suffering. I mean, we're living in a day when unemployment is ridiculously high. Isn't that right? I mean, it's through the roof. The government tries to tell you it's only a little over 10%. That's crazy. It's way higher than that. Way higher than that. Well, we don't want to be in a church where unemployment is the norm. I don't, we don't want to be in a place where 20% of the people do 80% of the work, right? We want to be a place of full employment. Every single person utilized by God in the ministry of the church, their gifts together in unity and diversity. It's a beautiful thing. If you're holding back now, if you're holding back, you're denying the very truth of verse 3. 
You're thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Love is untold damage done by a lack of ministry involvement. Untold damage done. Let me just list a few for you. If you are not involved in ministry, and even speaking of those that are home, that are shut-ins, and they're thinking, well, what ministry can I do? You can pray. You can pray. You can lift up the body of Christ in prayer. You can be an intercessor, a prayer warrior, because the church advances on its knees. There is a need for every single person in the gift that God has given. You know, if you are withholding yourself right now, let me just warn you, if you are withholding yourself for participation in the body of Christ here, then you are prone to become a critical person. You are prone to begin criticizing the church. You will develop a critical nature. That will be the tendency. If you are not involved in ministering, you will become a critic. Beyond that, if you are not involved in ministering, you will lack the deep and satisfying relationships that are available here in a local body. And what will happen over time is that you will grow more and more distant from the body. Your relationships will continue to be severed and become and grow stale and cold. And eventually what will happen, and beloved, I've seen this year after year after year, what will happen is you will drift away. You will drift away and you will drift away with a conclusion that nobody cares about me. Nobody loves me. There's no place for me here. I might as well go somewhere else. That has its origin in withholding yourself from ministry. Another danger with holding yourself from ministry is that you will limit the ministry potential of Foothill Bible Church. You will limit the ministry potential of Foothill Bible Church. We will not accomplish all that God would have us to accomplish unless every single person here is involved in moving it forward. Every single person utilizing what God has given you because every one of us are necessary. Every single one. You will limit where we can go and what we can do for the glory of God. The fourth thing that will happen is that you will force others to carry a heavier load. You will force your brothers and sisters to carry a heavier load. If you withhold yourself from ministry, certain ministry has to be done. And in doing it, others are going to have to carry a double load for you. You know, if we were carrying a telephone pole... And there were 30 of us and we all kind of lifted it and got it on our shoulder and we all carry it equally. It's not too bad. But when 30 put it up on their shoulder and 20 of them decide they're not really interested in carrying it, then the other 10 have to carry a pretty heavy load. Oh, the other 20 might walk along for the ride, you know, put their hand on top. But they're not carrying anything. They're not carrying anything. And you hold back. When you hold back, you're forcing somebody else to pick up the slack. This is huge. Listen to me. I just repeat this whole thing for you and just put it in a, in a nutshell for you. Think soberly about yourself. Who you really are. You are a sinner saved by grace through faith, yes? And when you take proper measurement of yourself on that basis, then there's no room for boasting over anyone else. Beyond that, God has gifted you like a 
like a spiritual snowflake. And he has given you a meaningful and important role to play in the body. And every single one of us is necessary together. And so in unity and diversity, we work together and we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is all about, beloved. And it begins and it rolls out of a renewed way of thinking. A renewed way of thinking.